you have these theories. One is non-local and indeterministic. The other one is local and deterministic. And you just want to merge them. Somehow it has to happen now because there is no reason that like gravity uh, will also affect small particles, not much, but a bit. And the small particles have, of course, are the constituent of the big ones. The moon is made out of small atoms, molecules, and so on. Um, so there should be a, a unified theory. I think every physicist is expecting that such a theory exists, and we call it quantum gravity. And it's now yeah, many people are working, trying to elaborate on that. But I think the first thing to do before trying to, to yeah, force these two uh, water and fire together is to uh, yeah to reflect on is relativity really local? Is relativity really deterministic? Uh, and I think the answer twice no. Nicholas Gishin is professor of physics at the University of Geneva. He's worked in both theoretical and applied physics. Uh, his focus is on the foundations of quantum mechanics. And here we talk about intuitionist mathematics, indeterminacy in physics, quantum mechanics, the, uh, the interpretations of quantum mechanics, and a bit about quantum gravity. Here is my conversation with Nicholas Gishin. How did you become interested in intuitionist mathematics? Well, it's actually a long story because, so I, I'm interested in uh, probabilities and uh, I keep, of course, understanding nature and physics uh, since uh, since almost ever. Uh, and I always thought it's a bit strange this idea that you know if you that that things that physics is deterministic. You start with classical physics; that's the way you start learning it at high school and universities, and there everything is deterministic. And uh, it, it was a bit bizarre, but okay, I accepted that and so on. But then uh, more recently, as I realized that actually, in a, especially in a chaotic system, and most classical dynamical systems are chaotic, uh, the determinism is actually not only a consequence of the equations, but also of the assumption that the initial condition is really perfectly determined. It's a real number, the standard real number. So you have a, an integer, you have a dot, and then you have an endless series of digits. And if you remove this assumption that the initial conditions are perfectly determined, but there would be some indeterminacy, then uh, automatically classical mechanics would also become indeterministic, as quantum is, uh, at least in the case of chaotic systems. So that was one thing. And then when I was actually presenting that somewhere in uh, Jerusalem, in this case, uh, some uh, professor there, Carl Posse, told me that actually what I'm doing with this uh, kind of not really real numbers uh, is intuitionistic mathematics. I've never heard of that before, but uh, he was actually, he was my Coincidentally, just writing a book on it, a kind of simple little book, I don't know, 150 pages maybe. And uh, I, okay, he started explaining me a bit the basics of this intuitionistic mathematics. And I found it extremely appealing and, uh, and intriguing. Firstly, it's a branch of mathematics. It's not a very well known, it's not the main uh, 
mathematics uh, research, uh, almost uh, most mathematicians. But it exists, and it exists actually since hundred years, so more than hundred years now. And if instead of using the standard mathematics, we just switch to these other mathematics in which you also have theorems, you also have calculus, you also have okay, continue, you have all that. But in this other branch of mathematics, um, if you use that one to, to do classical mechanics, then this uh, conclusion that, uh, that that nature should be deterministic, what is that classical mechanics uh, theory provides a deterministic description of nature, goes away. Classical mechanics becomes indeterministic. And so I found that really very fascinating. And there's maybe just one more thing before I finish with this first question. In this uh, uh, intuitionistic mathematics, there's one thing which is uh, really astonishing. It's namely the idea that, you know, as time passes, you gain more and more information. So it's not that all the digits are there once forever and since ever. The digits really come, become determined, get that right, become determined as time passes. And so you also have here a branch of mathematics. Again, it's a very respectable branch of mathematics, or sub-branch of constructivist mathematics, in which time enters. And uh, in physics, we have a, a problem with time. Time in physics, whether now it is quantum or classical or relativity, is just an evolution parameter. It's a parameter we denote it with a T, and we see T R represents time. But the time that we experience, we the humans, sadly also the animals, is not that. It's not just an evolution parameter that just tells you what kind of tra- where along a fixed uh, trajectories trajectory you are. Really, things happen in life. And, uh, and they happen as time passes. And so this intuitive understanding of time that we all have, or humans, or animals, and that, uh, is, 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 missed, is not existing in physics. Einstein, many people were a bit uh, worried about that. Most physicists just accept it in the end. Again, see, because it's all deterministic, so it's all there since ever, forever, like these real numbers. But again, if you go to this intuitionistic mathematics, in the mathematics already, in the language, in the very basic language that we, the physicists, use to talk about physics, talk about nature, and so on, there is time. And I think that is that might be a very uh, interesting way of uh, reconsidering the problem of formulating physics, including some concept of time, or when I often call it creative time, a time in which something happens. It's not just like in a movie where everything is only there, you just you know go along the movie, but you don't create anything. Uh, I think in life we are creative uh, by nature, and uh, so uh, we need some creative time in our best uh, physics theory, which we don't have yet. It, it's, it's interesting that the choice of language, the choice of mathematics is what determines the ontology here. Yeah. Yeah, I think this, this is very fascinating indeed. This came as a surprise to myself. I, I didn't expect that. 
studied mathematics, have a bachelor in mathematics in addition to my physics degree. Mathematics has never been a problem for me. And I thought, yeah, that's the obvious thing. And uh, yeah, and, and now, yeah, <laughs> in the last years, I, I realized that the, the language indeed affects uh, the worldview that, that the physics provides us. I mean, I, I don't know, so I speak English or French and German and a few languages. And so everybody who, who speaks more than one language knows that there are concepts that are easier, ideas that are easier to express in one language with respect to another language. Uh, but I thought always, oh, this is really for natural uh, languages, human languages. And I thought, yeah, no, in mathematics, very precise, cannot be uh, sourced like that. And in mathematics, that would not be the case. But actually, you have different mathematical languages. And with different mathematical languages, also leads to different uh, yeah, worldviews than when physics pre presents you. So physics is not only a set of uh, you know, experimental results and data and all that. Actually, the language you use to sort out all your data, so you formulate a theory with some ontology, that you get some explanations. But then if you write it down in one or another mathematical language, the, con the, the, the conclusion or the, yeah, the, the worldview again changes completely and it can go from deterministic to indeterministic, which is kind of the opposite. So to, to dive down into sort of the details of intuitionist mathematics, uh, so, the, so the main differences between Classical mathematics and intuitionist mathematics are that in classical mathematics, the real numbers are sort of just stipulated. All the information about them are are there from the beginning. Yeah, and remember, so a, re a typical real number has an infinite number of digits, and these digits are actually random. If they would be very structured, if it's one third, you know, it's zero dot three 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 three. Okay, there's a lot of structure, and these you can of course compress. You can just write one divided by three. So uh, for, for these kind of numbers, you can compress everything. That the one that can be compressed, we call them computable. But most of the, the real numbers cannot be compressed. So there is no structure in the the series of digits. And because there is no structure, if you want, if I want to give you a real number, I have to give you an infinite amount of information. That is going to take forever. First of all. And uh, whatever the bandwidth of our communication is, it's going to take forever. So you really have to understand that when we say, let x0 be the initial condition, physicists say that all the time. Actually, we are making an enormous uh, assumption here. We say, let x0 denote the infinite amount of information, which then would allow one to, at least in principle, compute all the future of the dynamical system. But I have to give you initially an infinite amount of information, not just that a little bit. It's infinite, at least for chaotic systems. If it is not chaotic, you don't need that much. But for chaotic systems, I need to give you infinite information. And, um, you know, if you know, think about it, not from a mathematical point of view, but from a physics point of view, there are no infinities. Each time it's finite, it's great and everything once, but yeah, there are no infinities. And for instance, if I just consider let's say, this little volume here, and imagine I have a little marble here in the middle, the initial condition, let's say the 
center of mass of this marble in this finite volume should be described according to standard views by a real number. So there should be an infinite amount of information in my little volume. And again, from a physics point of view, you never have infinite densities of information. And as soon as you realize that and you say, okay, let's now say that my, my numbers have finite information, it's a finite information, maybe this information may be growing as time passes, but at each time it is finite. Uh, then you see that you have actually some indeterminacy. So my marble as much, my marble's center of mass doesn't have a, a perfectly determined uh, position. There is some indeterminacy here. And okay, now if my bubble is just staying there or if it's just oscillating like a pendulum, that's okay. But if it's evolving with some chaotic dynamical system, then this, this very, very small initial indeterminacy may kind of you know, drive the system, bubble in this case, one way or the other. So it may evolve completely differently. This is now the indeterminacy. So indeterminacy in a chaotic system leads to indeterminacy. It may go one way or it may go another way. And the way that uh, Platonist mathematics solves this is that it stipulates both infinite information and instantaneous access to all that information. Yeah, you have well, access, I don't know whose access, but for sure it is there since ever and forever. So again, let x0 be a real number as an initial condition. There, you, you give everything, that x0, infinite information, bam, at once. And uh, so I said that's it in my lectures for, of course, for, for years. But now I realize that this is a bit absurd. It's, a, it's an excessive assumption. Just, just as a quick aside, when I talk to a lot of mathematicians, they say that Platonism is kind of the intuitive way that they think about mathematics when they're not really thinking about the high-level theory. They're just doing the math. Um, yourself as, as a mathematician, as someone who thinks about intuition as mathematics, do you share that commitment or are you finding it more natural to do math with an intuitionist view in the background? Yes. So indeed, that, that mathematicians, many of them, I need have this platonistic view. So these numbers and these mathematical objects, they exist in some yeah, platonistic world. And this platonistic world exists. No, it's outside of space and time. There's no time there. So it's a timeless language, mathematics. And, and maybe it's very, okay, maybe for sure, it is very beautiful. It's very attractive intellectually. Mathematics is, is beautiful. And mathematicians should continue developing this, uh, this super elegant, what was it read? But that's one thing, that's mathematics. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But when I now want to apply that to physics, would like to, I would have a language in which time enters and I want a language in which yeah, things can evolve and there can be some creativity. I think that exists in, uh, in nature and I want to be describing nature. So I better have a language that allows me to describe nature as it is and not uh, as if would be, if it would be, I don't know, in a, in a platonistic world. And so uh, I think for physicists, uh, intuition is, is much more natural. Right. And it doesn't make sort of extra metaphysical assumptions about the ontology of mathematics. There exist different mathematics. And in the, in the classical mathematics, 
that's the Platonistic view, and these objects exist, yeah, outside of space-time, have nothing to do with space and time. It doesn't depend on time. They are always the same, since ever, forever. They are in the same relationship, and so on. But in intuitionistic mathematics, this other type of uh, mathematical language, objects, including mathematical objects, including numbers, can evolve in time. So things change. New information gets created as time passes. And uh, this is certainly very surprising. I probably most uh, physicians and mathematicians even more would, uh, would have a hard time uh, swallowing what I'm saying. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a language which is well-developed, formulated, which, again, you can do all the computation. Actually, everything you can do on a computer, you can do. Maybe a computer is a good example. Uh, so I'm not saying that intuitionism reduces to a computer. Actually, intuitionism was invented before computers. But when you have something going on in your computer, for instance, you want to simulate the climate. Climate is something important. It's very... Uh, Timely. Uh, how do people simulate climate? They have huge computers, but finite. And then they put the best initial condition they can put into their simulation. So, but they cannot put a real numbers initial condition because a real numbers infinite transformation, and they have a finite computer. So they truncate. So we take truncated initial conditions, and then they run the algorithm, the simulation algorithm, maybe a deterministic. Uh, Algorithm. But because it is chaotic, the weather, the climate are chaotic dynamic systems. So when we go on a revolve of their simulation, at some point, this truncated initial condition is no longer sufficient. We need additional information. How do we do that? We just put random digits into it. And first you may say, but that's 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 nonsense, it's not random. But yes, it is random because anyway, you know, if you go to the to very, very small scale of the air molecules around, the last, the fine digits, they are clearly irrelevant. So you can't put whatever number there. And so it, it, in practice, the, the guys who are really doing that, really, in a, you know, professionally, climate uh, uh, physicists, they add uh, to this initial truncated Conditioned, they add random digits, and that's the way then they, they let the, the simulation evolve over tens of years and hundred years and predict, uh, you know, if we don't, if we don't pay attention, then the climate will uh, heat up more and more and so on. So the, the real physicists are doing that. Of course, they don't do, they're not conscious that they are somehow doing intuitionistic mathematics, but that's what we are doing. It does work. We don't use real numbers with infinite information. It doesn't fit in the computer anyway. And as time passes, as the simulation propagates, so it was, we add additional information. How do you view the continuum in, in intuitionist mathematics? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. So the continuum is also, and I don't know about the continuum in the intuitionistic mathematics, if you take the numbers between 0 and 1, uh, they are infinitely many uh, okay, we call it choice sequences in, in, in intuitionistic uh, mathematics. Let's call it just intuitionistic numbers, not to introduce too many terminology. Let's just call it intuitionistic numbers. So these numbers evolve 
and you, you will they all will evolve um, in such a way that they are going to cover the entire continuum. So it will not remain any holes or anything like that. It's, and this continuum, if you go now to the limits of infinite time, I don't want to go to infinite time because I don't want infinities. But if you think in terms of going to these infinite times, then you really just recover the standard real numbers because then, because at the end of time, everything is settled. Of course, there's nothing like the end of time. It's built to infinity. But if you want to understand that, maybe a bit intuitively, at the end of time, indeed, all the digits are there. So you recover real numbers. But at any finite time, even then, you know, a thousand years or whatever, there will only be a finite amount of information. But additional information is popping up continuously. As the process evolves. Yes. Yes, as the process evolves. Yeah. Is that where the idea of uh, thick time comes from? Yeah, I'm talking often about viscous time. Indeed. Uh, uh, we try to remember how does that then go with this. Uh... Yeah, you, you can have really these kind of processes, so these numbers that evolve, and sometimes you know numbers just get really separated, and then you can so long you can put your finger in between different numbers. But you could also have numbers that evolve and, and kind of stick together, uh, and uh, and so somehow. You have a concept of, uh, of viscosity here. Okay, I don't think about exactly how it goes now, I have to say. Uh, and again, I like this idea also that, you know, things are not ever identical and identical forever, since ever and forever, or they are different since ever and forever, but they are really, they stick together, but possibly in the future they may diverge. Possibly not. So they, they have this kind of viscosity. And so there is some sort of thickness here. Yeah, some kind of thickness. And uh, again, if you go to the traditional physics view of time, so time is just a real number. So you have this evolution going like that. And this is the present. And the present has zero thickness. Has somehow zero existence. It just, it's just one number here. It's, it's an infinitely... Uh, thin slides, and again, uh, this okay, uh, we can do physics and we do physics with these, but again, in infinite, so I don't like infinities in physics, also infinity thinner, again, a form of infinity. And uh, again, I think this is uh, this is uh, some sort of idealization, nothing wrong with idealization. But if you if you now have this idea that there is some uh, some some thickness some viscosity, I think we have a a more uh, we come closer to our intuitive understanding of the present. The present is not elusive. The present is I mean super important for every one of us. Of course, we live in the present and cannot be something just infinitely thin. I put almost there. Is there would be mentioned almost doesn't exist according to this traditional physics so physics expressed in the traditional classical mathematical language so you're imagining time is something far more fundamental than what we usually think of oh yes yes yeah you you, you have to use this phrase of telling stories and the idea that telling stories is important to physics and if we don't have a developmental view of time then you can't do that yes 
Yes, I think that's like, yeah, indeed. I think it's, it's a very important aspect. So in physics, what do we do? Of course, we do uh, experiments, okay, develop technologies. We also develop theories and some are very, uh, yeah, subtle and uh, elaborated theories and so on, like quantum field theory or whatever. And so these quantum technologies which are coming now, so it's all very impressive and so on. But I don't think, I think most physicists, and certainly that's true for myself, we don't do physics to develop technologies or to develop uh, sophisticated uh, uh, theories. We also want just to understand nature, understand how nature does it. And to tell a story, to, to, to understand how nature does it, we need to tell a story. So for instance, uh, everybody probably knows uh, but the tides, tides in, the, in the ocean, and of course this is due to the uh, attraction of the water by the water. Wood passes over the ocean, they attract the water and so on. And when you understand yeah, if the water is here, of course there is less there. So maybe that's a low tide here and things like that. Uh, of course, then we can be much more precise and we can do the computation and we know exactly how massive the moon is and uh, the density of water and blah, blah, blah. And we can compute that and how far the moon is and we can make very, very good predictions about uh, when the tides will be especially large because not only is the moon there, but maybe also the sun is attracting the water in the same direction and will make a tide way larger and, uh, and so on. But even if you forget all the equations, even if you don't know exactly what is the, how far the moon is or things like that, is the story that I just told you is the story that more or less everybody understands intuitively. And so yeah, how is it that you have these, these tides? Well, it is really the attraction, mostly of the moon, a bit of the other planets, and also of the sun, and so on. And it is because we are able to tell the story that we gain some intuitive understanding of this dynamics. Now, if you try to tell a story without time, we remove time, I try to tell you but the moon is passing here, so it's attracting the water, but there is less water there. But without time, I cannot tell these stories. And so uh, if we yeah, remove time from our uh, stories, then, then all the explanatory power of physics is gone. And since we, again, we want to explain things, we don't want just to have uh, sophisticated theories and that, and technologies, we want explanation. And I think explanation requires time. Right, right, that's true. There's there's a bit of an incentive difference between technology production and the storytelling explaining nature. Yeah. So returning to, to intuition as mathematics. So now this also introduces indeterminacy right into classical mechanics as well. Yes, so maybe we can take us a simple example of these dynamical systems. Okay, it's called the, the Baker's map, never mind. The, the way, okay, to, to simplify the description of such a dynamical system, uh, you have your initial condition. And let's suppose that it's only numbers between 0 and 1. So the state space is between 0 and 1. Okay, maybe this is the probability of, of rain. 
because zero means it's very sunny because it's a very low probability of rain and what will be rain. And in between, it may be, you know, with a probability of rain. I know as time passes, this dynamical system, these numbers just get shifted, okay, to the left. My, my left is that direction. Um, and the first digit drops out. And so after one time step, uh, the, the probability of rain will be dominated by this, the, what was initially the second digit, because now it's the first digit. And after two, two time step, it's the third one, the third digit, which will take the, the leading position, and so on. And we see that as time passes, eventually a digit which is very far down the series, which was initially completely irrelevant, gains in importance. And at some point becomes the dominant one, so it becomes very important. Uh, so we see this is really chaotic in the sense that the, the evolution depends very sensitively on, on very far down the series of the initial condition the digits of the initial condition. So it's very sensitive to the initial condition. You can take two initial conditions that are, let's say, identical for the 100 first digits and only change afterwards. So initially, we follow the same path, but after 100 time steps, we might diverge vastly, completely different. Okay, now in this example, A by the initial condition has only all the digits there, down to infinity. And then, of course, the dynamical system uh, has a deterministic evolution. Just shift by one at each time step, and it's, it's predetermined what is going to happen until the end of time. That's the classical mathematics view. If you turn to nutritionistic mathematics, that the initial condition is only as, as, as defined by an nutritionistic number, which has only finitely many determined digits. And afterwards, the digits are not yet determined, with really some ontological indeterminacy. But of course, as time passes, these undetermined digits, they start coming closer and closer and closer. So at some point, uh, they, they have to get determined, because either it's raining or it's not raining. So at some point, it becomes... Uh, necessary that we get determined. And that's exactly what uh, intuitionistic mathematics is telling you. You get, as time passes, new information that determine these uh, not yet determined digits. And, you know, so, so, so continuously this new information is created. And then you get the view that this dynamical system has indeed some uh, indeterminacy, but also some indeterminism in the sense that it is not from the start decided whether it's in 100 years, 100 days, 100 time steps, it will be ready or not. It's going to raise some creativity and the system may evolve one way, but it could also, let's say, towards rain or it could evolve towards a sunny day. Uh, and yeah, so I think this is Okay, again, it gives a different world picture using a different language, but I would also say that, at least to my taste, this deterministic uh, uh, worldview with some uh, small, what uh, real indeterminacy, the initial condition, gets much closer to to the physics I 
also understand it. You know, the weather today is whatever it is. In a year time, maybe rainy, maybe not rainy. Of course, I don't know, and no one knows exactly whether in Geneva it will be rainy in exactly one year time. Um, but I don't think we need then to say uh, that it is determined that it's just our ignorance. We don't know. Equally well, and we are with intuitionist mathematics totally uh, allowed to, to, to believe that the weather in a year time in Geneva is not yet determined. It's open. The future is open. Right, right. It, because if you don't use this kind of language, you can chalk it up to some sort of epistemic problem in chaos theory. But if you do use intuitionistic language, then it's a, it's a matter of fact in the ontology. Yeah. So just to shift gears a little bit then, um, talking about quantum gravity, a uh, totally different subject. Uh, do you, do you, yes, uh, very different indeed. <laughs> do you, do you have any favorite interpretations in quantum gravity? No. Um, well, I could not say different things, but you know, I think indeed, so, so we have one, two, one, one side. So I have a quantum physicist that spent all my career working on quantum physics and still work on quantum physics. So of course I'm very much, uh, have been, yeah, very much influenced by quantum theory uh, and uh, non-locality and randomness and so on. Um, but so, so in quantum, really, you have entanglements, Nobel Prize of last year in physics, entanglement and non-locality. Here it's for simplicity, a problem together in a basket, and you have this uh, indeterminacy. On the other side, you have gravity. Let's say gravity, general relativity. General relativity is our best the theory of gravity. And this is, first of all, local, absolutely local. Events are points in a, in a space-time, and uh, and really points in the mathematical sense. Not all, just the point. And uh, it's also deterministic. People are arguing that relativity has to be deterministic. I'm not sure about that. But for sure, uh, most people would understand the relativity as deterministic. And then you have these theories. One is non-local and indeterministic. The other one is local and deterministic. And you just want to merge them. Somehow it has to happen though, because there is no reason that like, gravity uh, we also affect small particles, not much, but a bit. And the small particles have, of course, are the constituent of the big ones. The moon is made out of small atoms, molecules, and so on. Um, so there should be a, a unified theory. I think every physicist is expecting that such a theory exists, and we call it quantum gravity. And it's now yeah, many people are working, trying to elaborate on that. But I think. The first thing to do before trying to, to yeah, force these two uh, water and fire together is to uh, yeah, to reflect on is relativity really local? Is relativity really deterministic? Uh, and I think the answer twice no. And so we need, okay, I'm starting now with classical mechanics, which is pre-relativistic, but Clearly, we can introduce uh, randomness therein or indeterminism. 
indeterminacy, which leads to indeterminism. However, I think that also goes all the way to relativity. And, uh, and also, I guess, the, the quantum non-locality is in great tension with, uh, uh, with relativity, even, even special relativity. I know we cannot communicate fast after light. We cannot use quantum non-locality to signal. That's, that's totally correct. But still, if you, if you see these photons or particles that are able to violate some very quality, they, they seem to, uh, to coordinate at the distance. And this coordination at the distance is not at all in the spirit of relativity. So I, I guess we need to change this basic theory is quantum relativity a lot before having any chance of merging them into one quantum gravity theory. And uh, I think most of the people who are working on quantum gravity today are going too fast, jumping ahead, and I don't think that's going to work. For instance, I'm, I'm convinced we need a way better understanding of time before we can hope for a quantum gravity theory. Do, do you mind expanding on that? Uh, what what needs to be clarified about time that would help the quantum gravity approaches? So in relativity, time is just a, a parameter. And, uh, and okay, it's, it's this uh, geometric parameter that Einstein introduced. No doubt that that works pretty well. Uh, but time in physics, and especially in quantum physics, uh, is very different. You know, you, you can perform a measurement. And before we perform the measurement, there was no output. The output is produced by the measurements. And after the measurement, of course, there is a result. So you have something creative happening there, a really new information that gets created during these uh, quantum measurements. And so this is a completely different sort of time. So we give the same name to, to the geometric timing and to the, to the creative time. Could also call one that Carpenter's timing because that's when everything is there. It's the existence that counts. And then the other time is Heraclitus time, when what is important is the passage, the changes. And uh, so in relativity, we have only one sort of time. In quantum, we have kind of the two times already. But the, the creative time is not really when understood. Okay, we name the measurement problem about we you know when that is happening, or how to uh, how to deal with this uh, measurement problem, how to characterize when a measurement takes place or when new information gets created. And um, I consider this as a real physics problem. I think the mechanics in this sense is incomplete. Not at all in the sense of. Uh, Einstein and, and John Bell. You are not looking for, for local variables and things like that, but I think it's incomplete because we have more understanding of the measurement problem. And I don't think we can, uh, I don't think we make a lot of progress towards this uh, quantum gravity theory as long as we didn't address the measurement problem. And so, and I think to solve the measurement problem, it will lead to new physics. So it's not just a matter of putting words on, on, a, on an existing theory. It is better to lead to new physics. Um, and yeah, new physics means also new predictions. So it will change a bit the, the theory. 
And, uh, and it's only once we've done that, that I think we, we have a chance to, uh, to understand quantum gravity. But so why do you hear is, is very, uh, unorthodox. What about, what about quantum mechanics? Do you have a preferred interpretation there? So there are certainly some interpretations I dislike deeply, like many worlds. Uh, I don't think this is even that. I don't think it's very consistent. I don't think it's very relevant. I don't think it makes any predictions and so on. Uh, then there are some interpretation like uh, spontaneous collapse models or considering that the reduction of the wave function is a real dynamical uh, effect. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I would even say if we really insist in reductionism, which is a dominant view, again, reductionism, that everything actually goes down to these elementary particles, um, then these elementary particles must have some indeterminacy and should also continuously kind of localize or get more determined. And this is this stochastic Schrodinger equations. Okay. I worked on that uh, many years ago. And now today we, people call it the GRW model, things like that. So I think this is quite attractive and it's attractive. Okay, it, rem it keeps uh, reductionism. Not sure this is attractive or not, but it's certainly a feature. Uh, and it's also very attractive because it could be wrong. At least you could falsify it. And I think then it shows that at least this is a physical assumption. Modifying the Schrodinger equation has effects. And uh, at least it could be wrong. Again, this is a feature, it's not a defect. The fact that it could be wrong. It means also it could be correct in an interesting way by making new predictions. So this is maybe the, by one of my favorite interpretations. But maybe we should be even more radical and start thinking that this reductionistic view is maybe not the end of the story. And that maybe after all that the Copenhagen view, that there is this classical world and when the classical world sometimes asks questions to the quantum world and the quantum world has to answer. So it's really a kind of top-down causation. So I get top-down causation in physics. I was my colleagues would shoot at me. Um, I mean, in a nice way, it's not a problem, but, um, but maybe we, we have, we should have the courage to think that indeed it's not always going bottom up, this elementary particle influencing everything, uh, the mood that cosmology, but maybe there are also some things that go top down. Well, so I'm open to these kind of ideas. However, I should also add that this is way too vague to be uh, to be physics. This is just my uh, thinking. Uh, okay, now getting close to six o'clock on Friday afternoon, so I know myself to have these these vague uh, ideas, speculations. But maybe someone should. Uh, maybe someday someone will find indeed a way to make these kind of uh, vague ideas precise enough to turn them into some real physics. Maybe I should say one more thing here about interpretations now of standard quantum mechanics. There's also Boolean mechanics, probably one of the sort of the leading uh, interpretation. And uh, so I'm not, I'm, I don't really like it too much. Again, it doesn't make predictions and I want physics and physics, you must have predictions. However, I think there's one way of Understanding Bohmian mechanics, which I like, 
somehow you have these quantum mechanics with the indeterminacy, the uncertainty relation, and all this kind of stuff. And then you say, okay, I add some hidden variables, non-local hidden variables. These are the boolean positions. And then I make my theory deterministic. And by the way, I also solve the measurement this is very similar, in my opinion, to take classical mechanics with this intuitionistic mathematics and say, oh, but I'm going to add also uh, hidden variables to classical mechanics, classical mechanics with these intuitionistic numbers. And my hidden variables will simply be the real numbers, the standard real numbers. So I add all these digits that intuitionistic mathematics says are not yet determined. Let's suppose they are determined. They are clearly hidden. There's no way to access the, the 100 digits. Uh, we cannot access it. So it is hidden. But if you postulate that it exists, then suddenly this indeterministic classical uh, mechanics becomes deterministic. Like postulating this uh, Bowman position turns standard quantum mechanics indeterministic into a deterministic Bowman mechanics. But do you, do you like the idea of thinking of the real numbers as supplementary? I think it's a nice analogy. And somehow I'm telling my like colleagues that now they have to make up their mind. Eva, we accept real numbers in classical mechanics, and then we should also accept Bowman positions in quantum mechanics. Or if you reject the Bowman position in quantum mechanics, we should also reject the real numbers in classical mechanics. Because most of the, my colleagues, I mean, almost all the physicists, you know, they accept the real numbers for classical mechanics without even questioning it. But they also reject movement positions. And so somehow it is not really consistent. You, you, you know, movement position, again, is infinite information, by the way. So it also determines all the future because you put everything in the initial condition of these movement positions. But why not do the same on the classical and the quantum level? It should be, we should be consistent here. And for historical reasons, I guess, uh, physicists, you know, buy the real numbers, but reject the workman positions. But I'm, as you probably understood, I'm on the intuitionistic side in classical me uh, mechanics, and consequently being trying to be consistent, I'm also rejecting Bornean positions. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I know we only have a few minutes left, so just last question I want to ask you about the the recent paper you wrote on um, the open past in deterministic physics. Uh, so what's what's going on there? Yeah, so this okay, that's a paper, it's own paper with uh, my collaborator Flavio Del Santo, and uh, yeah, so we are considering. So you, you get. Is you you get this additional information continuously popping up or being created? Of course, at any finite time, it's only a finite amount of uh, information, but still, it's it's a growing and growing and growing information. And so the idea is, couldn't it be that actually some information gets really uh, destroyed, evaporates, so that somehow the amount of information stays more or less kind of constant? Uh, but that would really mean that some information completely evaporates. It's not that we forgot about it or that it gets lost into complexity. It's really gone. And if that, under that assumption, which is just a 
a nice assumption to, to elaborate on, um, that would imply that the past, at least the remote past, is really also not only is the future open, but I believe that the future is open. But then that would say that also the past is open. I'm not talking about yesterday or a minute ago. I'm talking about really going far back in, into the past. There is a point in time where information to, to reconstruct that past has really evaporated. It's no longer existing. It's ontologically gone. And so the past is also open. Um, yeah, so we wrote this little paper that you noticed uh, appeared, I think, a few months ago now. And uh, yeah, I like the idea, but I wouldn't say that I'm totally committed to an open past. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sadly committed to an open future. For the past, I think it's a nice uh, elaboration of this intuition, which I just mentioned. And uh, yeah, again, we, we, we have some kind of symmetry, past and future, and both, both are open. But in this paper, we also argue that, you know, for, for, the, for the future, there are what we call propensities, probabilities, uh, but really objective probabilities of how the future is going to, to display, to, to happen. Um, and so, because these are propensities, you need a, quite a lot of information to encode these propensities. While for the past, you know, things are, are fixed, or at least the recent past, recent could go, you know, million years or whatever, could be a long time, but there we don't need propensities. It's, it is fixed, it is like that. Yesterday it was nice weather, period. You don't need propensities for that. And so, with the same amount of information, in the past, you can go way back, say, okay, I said a million years, you can go a long way back. By making predictions about the future, you cannot go very far because you need to, to, to describe the future with a lot of probabilities. And probabilities, not just a, a yes, no, it's, you have digits in your, in your probabilities. Finitely many digits, but you have digits, or you have a fraction, let's say. And so we, in this paper, we explain that the asymmetry between the future and the past is due to this fact that even if we say that the existing information is 50% for the future and 50% for the past, with this 50% in the past, you can go way further backwards than you can with the 50% propensities for the future. 